Won't you keep your Bibles open in that portion that we read together, Ezekiel chapter 18. Uh, and if you've just jumped straight to the, the sermon, um, you've missed out on a little bit of an introduction that I gave when we uh, read this portion and why we're looking at this portion. So you might want to just go back and, and look at the scripture reading together or at least uh, read this before you come with us now to the Word of God. So I want to start off this morning by asking you to think a little bit about your heart towards those around you who are unbelievers, who are lost, your unbelieving family or friends, or, or simply those that live and move among you and around you in the context of Johannesburg. What is your attitude to that man who comes to your gate regularly asking for, for work or food? who you can see is probably an alcoholic and has recently been in a brawl where he got all bashed up? What emotions well up within you when you think about those men who brutally attacked some of our church members in their homes recently? What is your daily attitude to the, the petrol attendants as you fill up your car or the ladies at the supermarket till or those who come to your window at the robot? Those that you interact with daily in the, the parking lots as you come and go from the shops. What about the people that work for you? Think about your domestic worker or your gardener or the cleaning staff in your office, the bus driver, the plumber or the electrician who comes to your home to fix something that's broken, your colleagues in the workshop or your co-workers in the office, your boss what is your heart attitude towards these people? What about your friends and family members who are not Christians? What is your attitude towards them when you see all the, the sinful choices that they continue to make, when you see them living openly in defiance and opposition to the ways of God and perhaps even persecute you for the fact that you seek to honor God in your life? What is your attitude to them when you see the, the consequences of their sinfulness? Or perhaps what is your attitude when you see that there seems to be no consequence to their rebellious attitude to God? What, what goes on in your heart as you consider these people? And as you think through these scenarios, I'm wanting you to, to really try and identify your attitude towards individual people across racial barriers, across social divides, across status divides in our society, from black to white, from employer to employee, from friend to enemy. What is the attitude of your heart towards the unbeliever? What is the tone of your voice when you speak to them or when you speak to others about them? What is the motive of your heart as you act towards them or act against them? In this season of COVID-19 with, with face masks, what do your eyes tell them as you interact with them? As the Honey Ridge Baptist Church here in the big city of Johannesburg, God has placed us strategically in the middle of a, a social and cultural melting pot where we have all kinds of, of interactions with unbelievers to the point where we have more opportunity at reaching the lost with the gospel right on our doorstep than we could ever possibly 
exhaust. Every human being that we see around us in Joburg is made in the image of God. They are made by God and for God. They are made to find all their purpose and joy and fulfillment and contentment in their relationship with God. And yet we know that sin has destroyed that relationship and left men and women and boys and girls in a state of of spiritual lostness and and death and, and separation from God. So just think about how many unbelievers you interact with every day, every week, every month, at school, at university, in your home, at the shops, in the street, with your neighbors, or at the golf club, riding or or running, or even through the, the ministries of this church. You see, every Christian is meant to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ in this lost world. And God has given us an incredible opportunity to to mix with and to represent Him to the spiritually lost people from all walks of life every single day in order to reach these people with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's great to be able to promote this morning this book of missions trips to Zimbabwe. 11 years, 31 trips, and and you can read of God's incredible provision and an incredible work of grace that has taken place in Zimbabwe. And, And that is something that should be celebrated and something which we should do more and more. But let me just bring it right back home today. When last have you brought a visitor to church? When last have you shared the gospel with an unbeliever on our doorstep, in our suburb? When last have you invited an unbeliever over for a meal to get to know them, to build a relationship with them so that the love of the Lord Jesus Christ can be made manifest through your life? Why are we so bad at reaching the lost for Christ? Why has it been ages since we've last heard of someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Why does it possibly not even worry us that we haven't heard that recently? Or concern us that that almost everyone around us is, is heading for a horrible eternity in hell and we are doing nothing about it? What is your heart attitude towards the unbeliever, towards the lost sinner. Let me read to you what Charles Spurgeon said. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Here lies our problem, isn't it? We can't, for the most part, say what Spurgeon said. For we seldom take any real interest in the lost sinner. After all, 
We say things like, well, they've rejected God. They've made their choices. Religion is a private matter. Who am I to interfere? Well, Ezekiel chapter 18 is one of those wonderful passages of Scripture which is recorded for us to teach us a number of important lessons about God's heart towards sinners and how therefore we as His ambassadors in this world should treat those who are headed to spend an eternity in hell. Now, before we can have a right attitude towards sin and, and those who are living in, in defiance and rejection of God, we need to see how God views man in his natural sinful condition. And then we need to see God's heart towards mankind in that condition so that we can then reflect that same heart of God towards the lost that God has brought us into contact with. Now there are two, at least two great barriers to reaching sinners with the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Now these barriers are, are very modern and yet they are as ancient as mankind himself. Number one is that man considers himself as basically good. And then secondly, that man's sinfulness and suffering in this life is believed to be the consequence of inheritance and environment. And so it's not uncommon then today to hear of people speaking about the fact that either we are just basically good people who don't really need to be saved or speak about people in terms of a kind of a victim mentality. I'm a, I'm a victim of my upbringing and the choices that my parents made. I'm a victim of my environment and, and the situation in which I was forced to grow up in. I'm a, a victim perhaps even of God's unjust treatment towards me because I don't deserve what's happening to me. Do those things sound familiar? And so the, the, as the popular belief goes, if you and I are basically good people and if bad things are happening to us, well, or if, if we are, are struggling with our circumstances or we're struggling with, with anything which we don't think that we deserve, then we are told by the, the professionals that it must be somebody else's fault. You are not to blame. Somebody else in your past is the problem. Or your past circumstances are the problem. It's not fair. You are right. It's not your fault. Well, that's exactly, exactly where we find ourselves in this state of Judah two and a half thousand years ago. As we've just been considering over the last three weeks in the book of Habakkuk, the, the northern state of Israel had fallen under the judgment of God, had been taken off into captivity by the Assyrians about a hundred years prior to this. And now the southern state of Judah was under attack by this new world power, the Babylonians. They had risen up, God had raised them up, and in the first wave of attacks, the very best people of Judah and Jerusalem were taken off into captivity. This was the educated, the, the nobility, the royalty, the social elite in society. They were taken off into captivity in Babylon. And part of this first group were men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and also the prophet Ezekiel. And so the context of Ezekiel 18 is that we now have a group of these uh, Judeans, uh, these 
people of God sitting by the river Kebar in Babylon, moping and sulking about their lot in life. And it is here that the Lord raises up Ezekiel as his prophet to speak to the people who had been exiled in Babylon. And we find as we come to chapter 18 that the general attitude of the people was very much the attitude that I've just been speaking of. It's not fair and it's not my fault. And so my first point this morning is based on on their general attitude to life. They said, life is not fair. And they were quoting a proverb which, which went like this. Chapter 18 verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's not fair. Why are we being punished in exile because, the sin, because of the sins of our fathers? They were the ones who ate the sour grapes and we are the ones who have our teeth set on edge. It's just not fair. And so God enters the picture. And speaks to the people through his prophet Ezekiel. And he says to them in verse 1, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And there's a, a real tone of surprise in the word of God. But not only is God surprised at their reasoning, he's clearly not pleased with what they are saying. And so he says to them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you shall not use this proverb in Israel any longer. Now, Why is God's anger burning at his people at this point? I mean, didn't God say back in Exodus chapter 20 verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, it's true. As we look over the scriptures, that we see this principle before our very eyes in in the pages of Scripture and in everyday life around us. We see children who suffer the earthly consequences of the sins and the bad decisions made by their parents. I'm sure you can all recognize that and identify that, perhaps even in your own family. We see children who, who copy the mistakes made by their parents and This is a general principle of the curse of sin, which says that your own decisions and your own sinful actions carry with them consequences in this life that affect others around you and those who come after you. We can't get away from that. So there are clearly practical implications of our sin, which then passes on to our children. But each individual morally stands or falls before God one day based on their own decisions and their own actions. The moral guilt of the father is not transferred to the son. The only moral guilt which is transferred to us as individuals is that of Adam's original sin which results in all of us being born as human beings into sin. But after your physical birth, although you may suffer various earthly consequences of your father or your mother, you will stand or fall before God one day based on your own decisions, your own attitudes, and your own actions. 
Now the people in Ezekiel's day had gone to the words of God in, in Exodus chapter 20 and distorted them in order to then shift the blame or the guilt of their own sinfulness away from themselves to someone else. And so they were just acting in conformity to, to the way Adam and Eve acted Back in the Garden of Eden, we know that Adam blamed God and then he blamed Eve and then Eve blamed the serpent. Each of them saying, it's not my fault. That person made me do it. So God speaks to the people and he condemns this, this self-righteous attitude. You see, they had their professional psychoanalysts of their day too. They were just called false prophets in their day. People who, who went around telling the people the exact same stuff that we get told today. It's not your fault. You're the victim. Blame it on your father or your addiction or your genetics or your upbringing. So God responds to this reasoning in verse 4. And he says, behold, look at what God says. All souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now here God is speaking very clearly, very directly into our contemporary context. Behold, says God, listen, take notice. All human beings are mine. I made every one of you the soul of your father, the soul of your mother, as well as your soul. They all belong to me, and each individual person who sins will die. The wages of sin is death. So stop looking to, to blame your father or your mother or your lack thereof or any other circumstance for your own sinfulness and rejection of God. Each person will stand or fall before God based on your own record. And so we see in these first four verses that the people lay this charge against God. It's a general charge. Life is not fair. And God responds with a very clear statement that life is fair. You get what you deserve. The soul who sins shall die. And then in the next 13 verses, and we won't read that again, but from verse 5 through to verse 18, God illustrates this truth very simply and clearly for them. God tells them the story of three men, a man who has a son who then later has a son. So it's the grandfather, the father, and the son, three generations. The first man, we are told, is a righteous man who does what is lawful and right and good. And God says that he will live because he is righteous. Now, let's just consider briefly the standard of that righteousness for a moment. And we'll come to that a little bit later. God says this man who is righteous, he is not an idol worshiper. He is a faithful husband. He does not commit adultery. He's kept himself pure before God. He has never oppressed anyone, not racially, not financially, not socially. He pays all his accounts on time, even to source. He is honest in, in all his business transactions. He's a man of integrity. He is not violent. 
He meets the needs of the poor with food and clothing. He protects the rights of children and those who are being abused. He does not charge interest when he lends to people. He is not taken up in life with making profit off others. He actively resists criminal activities and injustice. He acts as an arbitrator between men judging wisely. He lives his life in accordance with the statutes of God and he keeps the commands of God faithfully. This man, God says, is just. He is righteous. And the good news is that he will live. But then this man has a son who is a robber and a murderer. He commits all the sins that his father did not do. Well, says God, this man, the son, will surely not live, for he is a sinner and he will die. But then this wicked man, he has a son who learns from his father's mistakes and considers all that his father did, and, and he decides to break the pattern, and he does what is pleasing and righteous before God. Well, then God says, this man will surely live. Now, the point of the illustration is not that it is actually possible for a person to earn salvation before God. The rest of Scripture makes that clear. Even this list makes that clear. Clearly, God has gone to great lengths here to show us that His standard is perfect obedience to the law of God for your whole life. And no one can ever live up to that. So the point of the illustration is to show us that each individual person stands or falls before God individually based on his own actions and attitudes. What God is making very clear is that the man who sins will die. So God concludes this illustration by summarizing his point in verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, let's move on then and consider what they said next. And in the second place, they said, Oh, God is not fair. Firstly, life is not fair. Now the finger gets pointed more specifically. God is not fair. Now, if this is where the passage stopped, we would have a big problem. Because who could ever possibly meet the standard which God has set? If this is where the passage ended, we would be left with a religion of salvation by works. And all people would be left hopelessly pursuing a, a life of good deeds, knowing that they are constantly falling short of God's standards and wondering if they'll ever be good enough to make it into heaven. Or perhaps on the other hand, as is more common today, people have an overinflated view of themselves, a very low view of God and His holiness, and so they actually believe that they are good enough to earn a salvation before God, unaware that God will not accept them one day. Well, thankfully, God knew that this is the conclusion that we would rightly draw at this point. And so God introduces here this wonderful biblical concept of repentance. Look at verse 21. God says, But if a wicked person turns away 
or repents from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. Now, if the verse had stopped there, that would have been wonderful news. But unfortunately, it goes on and says, For by the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. So that doesn't really help us because, yes, if I repent of my sins, that will, they'll be forgiven. That's, that's good news. But then I have to continue to live righteously according to God's perfect standard, and that's impossible. But then look at verse 23. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Now, you might be tempted at this point to respond to God and say, Lord, that's not fair. You are not being fair, God. You desire the wicked to turn from his wicked ways, to repent, but then the standard that you set for righteousness is too high for anyone to attain. That's not fair. Well, guess what? That is exactly how the exiles in Babylon responded. Look at verse 25. And again, verse 29, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. In other words, God, you are not being fair. And so God responds to that charge in verse 24 and 26 to 28 that he is being perfectly fair and just. He will judge each man according to the way he lives his life. And so God reaffirms his perfect righteousness and justice in verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone or each individual according to his ways, declares the Lord God. So God responds to the general accusation that life is not fair and then to the more specific accusation that God is not fair and his response to both accusations is the same. You will get what you deserve. The man who sins shall die. That's fair. So this brings me then to our final point today in which God now responds and says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not fair. What do we do with verse 23, which says that God does not desire the death of the wicked, but that all should return, uh, repent and, and turn from their ways and live? Because we've seen that that is impossible. We are all sinners, and even if we do repent from our past sins, the standard for future obedience is just too high. So, so what can we do? How can we ever get rid of the sin in this life and then be restored into a relationship with God for all eternity? How is that possible? Well, let's read Verse 30b together, and, and as we do so, I want you to try and grasp the heart of God towards sinners. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
Why would you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. I hope you can see God's heart of of love and compassion towards sinners. Lost and rebellious sinners. And yet God's heart goes out to them, crying to them to repent, to turn from their sins and to live. God is pleading with every one of us to repent from our sins and to turn away from all our transgressions. God takes no pleasure, no delight in the death of anyone. And so he says, turn and live. But I want you to see the key ingredient to this turning. The key ingredient to being accepted by God. The key ingredient to this eternal salvation. Verse 31 is the key. Look at what God says. Make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Other translations say, get yourself a new heart or find yourself a new heart. So there you have it. It's it's simple. If you want to turn away from your sins and you want to live a life which is pleasing to God, if if you want to be saved from, from hell and spend eternity in heaven, then just do one thing. Go and get yourself a new heart. Go and find it. And if you can't find it, then go and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Say what? Excuse me? Hang on a minute. That is more impossible than the first thing that God just told us to do. If it was impossible to to live a righteous life which is acceptable to God's perfect standard, well, at least that kind of vaguely seems possible. At least I can try. But to go and get myself or or make myself a new heart and a new spirit, I mean, come on, you can't be serious. How can I change my nature? How can I change the very affections of my sinful heart? That is absolutely impossible. And that's the point. That's exactly the point that God wants us all to reach. That is why the gospel is not fair. Because the gospel is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, which is freely given to those who realize that their situation is impossible. And until you realize that you have no hope of ever achieving eternal life through your good works, and you realize that you have no hope of changing your desperately sinful heart, then you will not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, but that's impossible. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
Nicodemus responded to Jesus and said, How can these things be? Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus, have you never read the prophecy of Ezekiel? Well, this passage that I've just read to you from John chapter 3 was one of the favorite passages of, of George Whitfield, the, the great 18th century evangelist whom God used in such an amazing way to bring about revival in England and America. We are told that George Whitfield preached on John 3 verse 3 over 300 times in his life. But wherever George Whitfield went, he made the doctrine of the new birth his universal message because he found that it met a universal need. Listen to what he said. Born again, what does it mean? It means, if it means anything, that the miracle of creation's morning may be reenacted. A man may be made all over again. He may be changed root and branch. The very fiber and fabric of his manhood may be transfigured. I cannot explain the creation of the universe. But for all that, here is the universe. I cannot explain the mystery of birth. But what does it matter? Here is the child. I cannot explain the truth. That darting like a flash of lightning into the soul of that Oxford student transformed his whole life. But here he is, George Whitfield. I'm now 55 years of age, he said in one of his final sermons. And I'm more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself. And that without it, you can never be saved. So where does that leave you then this morning? The word of God through Ezekiel says that you must go out and find yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Or else you will die in your sins. And Jesus says the same to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need a new heart and a new spirit. Your first birth was a flesh birth and it leads to death. So how is it possible then to get yourself this new heart? How is it possible for, for you to be reborn? Well, let's go back to Ezekiel to find God's answer. Where do we get this new heart? Well, we, we have the answer to this dilemma created for us in Ezekiel 18 in Ezekiel chapter 36. And, and I'm going to emphasize as I read it where we find the solution. This is God speaking to the same group of people through the same prophet. And listen to what he says in Ezekiel 36 verse 24. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And here it is. I will give you. A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. 
praise God today that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not fair. It's all the mercy and the grace of God to, to undeserving and rebellious sinners like you and me who had no hope of ever escaping the righteous judgment of God for our sins. Jesus not only forgives our sins in which we once lived, but he gives us a new heart and he gives his Holy Spirit to live within us in a way which causes us to live pleasing to God. But even more than that, even post our conversion, even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And so Jesus himself credits to our account his perfect righteousness that he earned so that we might be accepted before God. Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not die for his sins, will not perish, but will have eternal life. Now does that sound fair? That Jesus should die in your place so that you can inherit eternal life? That's not fair. If anything in the world was ever unfair, it was that the perfect righteous Son of God should die on a cross to pay the price for your sins and mine so that we can have eternal life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not fair. Praise God that it's not fair. For without this grace of God to us, you and I would have no hope. You and I don't want fear. We want Jesus. So the application of God's word this morning then is, is twofold. Firstly, I want to just speak to those of you today who are unbelievers. You have not been born again. You have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Where do you stand before God today? Have you perhaps been basing your eternal security on your father's relationship with God? Perhaps your dad is, is a righteous man, a, a godly Christian, and, and you've based your security on his relationship with God. Or perhaps on the other extreme, you've been hiding behind the excuse of your father's sins, blaming him as the reason for your stubbornness and rebellion and sinfulness against God. Well, the message of Ezekiel is very clear. Whether you are trying to blame others for your sins or whether you are trying to, to earn a righteousness before God by your own good works or, or by association to a, a godly father, neither is acceptable to God. You will be judged by God according to your own deeds. And you will be found wanting. You will die for your own sins. That's fair. But thank God that there is a glorious alternative to those two scenarios. And that alternative is Jesus. Because he willingly took the blame for your sins. He died in your place, the death that you deserve to die. And he credits to your account his perfect obedience to the righteous standards of God's law. Now that's not fair. 
And all of this is available to you today if only you will heed the word of the Lord, which is repent, turn from your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ today. And God says in Ezekiel 18 verse 22, none of the transgressions that you have committed will ever be remembered against you. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Why should you die, O South African, in Johannesburg in 2020? I take no pleasure in anyone's death, declares the Lord. So repent and live. This is the great desire of God's heart for you this morning. And this is why he sent his son Jesus to die in your place. So that you don't have to die for your sin. So that you can break the pattern of your father or your mother or your environment or even your own sinfulness. You can repent and live. Won't you hear God's plea to you today for salvation? But there's another application this morning, which is, is really for us who are Christians. My question to you then is, do you have this heart of God for sinners? Can you honestly say with all sincerity, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should turn and live? As you think through all those categories of people that I asked you to think about at the beginning of the service, can you genuinely say that my great desire for each one of those people is that they would repent of their sins and live? It's easy to say that we believe that. But is that what, what comes out in our conversations with these people? Is that what comes out of our actions towards the wicked in our city? Is that what they see in our eyes as we interact with them in the shops or at university or in the office? Does the evidence of our prayer lives reveal that we are praying for the conversion of these sinners? Or do they see in you a self-righteous judgmental attitude? Eyes which are cold to their spiritual condition. Hands which are withdrawn from helping them in love. Speech which is derogatory and racist and degrading. When sinners look at you, are they seeing a, a pompous spiritual pride exuding from your religion? Or do they see a sinner just like them, who has been overwhelmed by the, the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ on the cross, who is loving them in a way which they don't deserve because you were loved by Jesus in a way that you did not deserve. What is your heart towards sinners? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at color or race or social status or background or, or lifestyle. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. And here it is, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us this ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, says Paul, you and I are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. And so, Paul does what reveals his heart is in line with God's heart. He says, we then implore you, unbeliever, we implore you on behalf of Jesus to be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When last have you shared this message of reconciliation with anyone. This good news of God's love for sinners, this good news of reconciliation to God in Christ. Every person whom God has sovereignly ordained to be part of your sphere of influence in this world is an appointment which God intends for you to represent Him to them as His ambassador. God is making His appeal of salvation to those people in your life through you. So how many people are going to a lost eternity, unwarned and unprayed for? May God give us His heart for lost sinners. To see them as He sees them to love them as he loves them, so that we might be his faithful ambassadors of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to this desperately lost and dying world around us. Let's pray and ask God to help us do this. Our Heavenly Father, we come at the end of this portion of scripture and we must truly marvel at your grace to us truly marvel at the hopelessness of our sinfulness and our condition before you as the righteous judge of the universe and yet to see that in our impossible hopelessness you made a way of salvation possible but you didn't just make it possible you accomplished it by sending your own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place. To live a life of perfect righteousness, to be credited to our account. And all of that is made ours through your act of grace of giving us a new heart and a new spirit and causing us to repent and to trust in Jesus. Lord, we marvel at the good news of salvation. We marvel at the unfairness of it. And may we never be guilty of accusing you of, of treating us in an, in an unjust way. Because the gospel is the most unfair reality of this universe and it is all for our benefit. And so as we marvel at the gospel, Lord, we want to pray and ask that our hearts would be stirred today to respond rightly to that. That you would grant us your heart for sinners around us, for the lost in our family and friends and colleagues, and particularly at this time of Christmas as we perhaps get together with people that we may not have seen for a long time, perhaps as family come and visit us and, 
we go to family for Christmas time and we interact with those who are unbelievers, won't you give us your heart for those who are unbelievers? That we would pray for their conversion, that we would pray for opportunities to represent the reconciliation that is found in Jesus Christ to them, that we would represent the love of God the Father for them in all that we do and all that we say. Won't you give us the words to speak in those moments, to share with them, not in a judgmental and condemnatory way, the lifestyle that they've perhaps chosen or the choices that they've made, but may our hearts break as we consider the eternal destiny to which they are headed. And as Spurgeon said, if they are going to go there, Lord, may they go there with our arms around their knees, pleading with them and praying for them that they would turn to Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for so often being cold towards those around us who are outside of Christ. Forgive us, we pray. Change our hearts. Cause your spirit to stir within us your love for sinners. And may we be a people here at Honey Ridge who are faithful in being the ambassadors of Jesus Christ to this world around us in which you have placed us. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory, that the kingdom of God might grow, that men and women and boys and girls would come to saving faith in Jesus and that you would be praised for all eternity. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.